Right, if you want to open up your Bibles or you can follow along um, on the screen behind me to Philippians 1, verse 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false ambition or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that throughout your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For in me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will be mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Now I'll invite Chris to bring the word. so nice of you to do that. I don't know if I'm going to use it, but this, we'll start. We'll start like this. Uh, okay. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Today's week three of our series, going through the book of Philippians, and we've titled it Citizens. And this is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote from prison in Rome, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. And he's writing to a church he planted in Philippi, a Roman colony. And he has this deep friendship with the church. He's grateful for their partnership. He he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus to use his language. And the church loves him too. They're concerned about him. He's in prison. And they want to know about his situation. And so in the passage we're studying today... Paul lets the Philippian church into his own thinking about his imprisonment. He gives us a window into his psyche and how he's wrestling with his circumstances. And a lot of us were new to the Bible, so let me give you a bit of a background on Paul's story. Paul is one of the most influential people to ever live. Paul wrote 13 letters that got into the New Testament. He was not always a follower of Jesus. Like some of us, Paul was a skeptic. More than that, Paul was deeply hostile to the message of Jesus. He thought it was ridiculous and dangerous, right? A crucified Messiah and Savior, that sounds insane. 
And so Paul made it his mission to stomp out the message. He used his influence and privilege and power to arrest followers of Jesus and crush the church in Jerusalem. Until Paul encountered the resurrected Christ. That Jesus appeared to Paul, and Paul was never the same. That Jesus died for sin and rose again, and he encountered Paul. You can read about it in the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 9. And Paul became a pastor and a church planner. From a persecutor of Christians to a pastor of Christians and a church planner to the point where he was willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned, not with edibles or stuff, like, but like they, threw, they threw rocks at him. That's what that means. It is Vancouver. So rocks were thrown at him and they tried to throw rocks at him until he died. He was shipwrecked. He labored, he toiled, he went without sleep, he experienced danger after danger. He suffered willingly. He suffered for Jesus, that Jesus was worth it. And in this passage, Charissa just read for us, he tells the church in Philippi how he's doing. And so I'm going to walk us back through the passage together. We'll start in verse 12, and it'll be on the slides. It's really every time I look to this side of the room... I feel like Paul on the road to Damascus, like a brilliant light, and I'm, Lord, is that you? So anyways, uh, verse 12, I might look a lot towards this side of the room. Uh, Here's the scripture. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And so here Paul is referring to his imprisonment when he says, I want you to know what's happened to me. He's talking about being imprisoned. And he says, I want you to know what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. The gospel has advanced, not in spite of Paul's chains, but because of them. And the Greek word Paul uses for advance, he only uses one other time in his other letters. It's the word prokopa. And Paul uses it twice in this passage because it's one of the primary ideas he wants to get across, this advance or progress of the gospel. And the term advance was used in Greek to talk about progress in learning or blazing a trail for an army. In other words, Paul saw his chains as a catalyst for the gospel taking new territory. Through his chains, the gospel is advancing or progressing. How? Well, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. And the guard he's referring to is likely Caesar's elite guard, made up of around 8,000 to 10,000 soldiers. And these guards, there would be a unit assigned to Paul, and these guards would be chained to him for four-hour shifts. And so Paul was a captive, but so was his audience, chained to him for four hours a day at a time. And you can imagine how the soldiers began to gossip about this man and his message. Like multiple times a day, tough, hardened, you know, Green Beret, Roman soldiers were chained to the most dynamic, persuasive evangelist that has ever lived. And one after another, they're getting converted. 
If you flip in your Bible to Philippians chapter four, the end of the letter, there's this interesting little line. Paul writes this. He says, all God's people here send you greetings all the way from Rome. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Like, who are these fellow believers from Caesar's household who send their greetings? Well, it's likely Roman soldiers who've been converted by the preaching of Paul. And remember, the city of Philippi he's writing to, it's a Roman colony that was populated with retired soldiers. And so Paul wants this young church to be encouraged that soldiers in Caesar's household are coming to Christ. Some of the elite soldiers, the best of the best. He says, through my imprisonment, Roman soldiers are coming to Christ in the heart of the palace, in the heart of the capital, in the very heart of the empire, that the reign of Caesar as Savior, Lord, and God printed on the coins, worshipped in the marketplaces with pinches of incense, it's starting to topple. The seeds of his overthrow are being planted because Paul is in his prison proclaiming a different kind of Lord. And the gospel's advancing. And for this reason, Paul rejoices. And in our day, we have a complicated relationship with the advancement or progress of the gospel for many reasons. But primarily because the advance of the gospel came on the coattails of greed and exploitation and oppression and a colonial expansion. The message came with measles and smallpox and guns and germs and steel. Languages were erased, cultures were lost, people were taken advantage of, and the message of Jesus was viewed as the white man's religion. Violence in the name of Jesus, oppression in the name of Jesus. It's horrible. And it's not the way of Jesus. And yet somehow, the gospel still advanced. Often it advanced more rapidly and powerfully once the foreign missionaries were kicked out. And Revelation chapter 7 tells us where the story is going. I love this passage. It's a window into heaven. The writer pens these words. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every culture, tribe, tongue, people, and language, a multitude no one can count. This means that whatever evil people have done, no language or culture is erased by Jesus. It's preserved in God's new heavens and new earth. That's the heart of God. And the good news of Jesus comes into every culture and both confronts and blesses, bringing transformation from the inside out. It confronts the East and the West with the reality of God's reign in Jesus. The true gospel blesses that which is good and redeems that which is broken wherever it goes. And this gospel has been endlessly translatable to other cultures, which is why Christianity's geographical center is always shifting. Think of Africa. In 1970, there were 120 million Christians in Africa. 
1998, just under 330 million. They predicted by 2020, or by today, there would be just over 600 million. They were conservative. By 2021, there were nearly 685 million Christians in Africa, with 760 million expected by 2025. And when explaining this explosive growth, Gambian theologian Lamine Sana wrote of his continent and his people these words. He said, people sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred jumps for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. It's interesting. Whatever one thinks, the future of Christianity is in China and Africa and South America. And the ultimate future is every culture and tribe and tongue, a multitude no one can count. Christopher Watkin points out this. He says, quote, The irony is that the diversity preached in the name of secular humanism would not be accepted in most of the world, whereas the Christianity which it condemns as narrow and Western wraps its loving arms of cultural hospitality right around the globe today, such as an estimated 2.18 billion Christian believers in the world. And so think back to Paul and the Philippians, right? The Christians in Philippi are a tiny minority. The Roman Empire, its power, its loyalties, its practices, it seems hostile to your faith. And all the plausibility structures of your culture make it difficult to claim and believe that Jesus is King and Lord and God. And now your great apostle is in prison, confirming the fact that the Christian movement is on the brink of being snuffed out. And Paul goes from prison. I want you to know about the advance of the gospel. Even soldiers in Caesar's palace are coming to Christ. And then for us, we live in a global city. And we're a newer church plant. Think about what Paul might write to us about the progress of the gospel. You're in a classroom, boardroom, break room, on social media. You're a follower of Jesus. You are a cognitive minority, meaning the basic contours of your worldview are rejected or viewed with suspicion. And you're clinging on, but you're timid and you're afraid and you're wondering if it's worth it. And it seems that everyone around you questions not just is Christianity true, but is it even good for the world? Imagine Paul writing to you, I just want to remind you that 2,000 different language groups in the world pray to and worship Jesus as Lord and God. I just want to, you know, I just want to remind you that more people pray and worship Jesus in more languages than compared to any other religion or ism in the world. I just want to remind you that they love Jesus very much and they think the good news of Jesus is the best news they've ever heard. I know you value literacy. I just want to remind you that more dictionaries and grammars of the world's languages have been created by the advance of the gospel than any other force in history. I just want to remind you that when the true gospel advances, literacy increases, healthcare increases, education increases. It's like I know you're feeling isolated and alone out there, but all of God's people greet you, especially the believers in Iran 
which is the fastest growing church in the world. Also, the 120 million Christians in China say, what's up? There are more Anglicans in Ghana alone than in the West. They say hello. And I just want to remind you that in areas where there's persecution and hardship, the gospel seems to advance all the quicker. That God is gathering in the nations. We say God doesn't intervene. I see more than two billion signs of God's intervention walking around right now, and they're dazzling in their diversity. I just wanted you to know, citizens of heaven living in Vancouver, about the progress of the gospel. Back to Paul's prison cell. He continues. He says this. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I think sometimes truth is better caught than taught. Like a model is better than a monologue often. And what Paul has done for these believers is modeled boldness in his life. And boldness can inspire more boldness, right? Confidence can inspire more confidence. Confidence is not always taught by others, but confidence can be caught from others. We see their courage and it inspires courage in our hearts. And Paul's willingness to suffer for Christ has inspired others to be bold for Jesus. But then he writes this, look back at the text. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And so Paul in his writing compares two groups, and we have a chart uh, that Dan made for me that shows you his friends preach Christ, so do his rivals. Friends out of goodwill, rivals out of envy and rivalry, friends in love, rivals selfishness not sincerely, one knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, others so that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And he starts to discuss motives, right? Motives matter. If I'm kind to my grandmother to receive a piece of the inheritance, my kindness is a farce, right? Like, it's forced. I'm not loving her, I'm using her. Like, motives matter. And Paul's heard these reports, like, some of those are preaching about Jesus, but they're doing sort of envy and rivalry. They're preaching from selfish ambition. They envy Paul, they view him as a rival. Perhaps they're jealous of his effectiveness you know, as a missionary. They're envious of his influence, his book deal, right? 13 books that got into the New Testament. Perennial bestseller. Like, his towering intellect is intimidating. Whatever the reason is, they're jealous. Now, what's interesting is Paul says they're still preaching the true gospel. Like, they're telling people about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're telling people about the forgiveness of sins. They're telling people that Jesus is the name above every name. It's the true gospel, but it's preached with bad motives, all out of envy and rivalry. And we always want to resist reading the Bible and placing ourselves in the role of the hero. 
like we're the apostle in chains, boldly witnessing for Jesus, and never those with envy in our hearts and a bit of jealousy. Like, how do you feel when someone gets something that you don't, when you want that thing? Right, because envy and rivalry is a real temptation for the human heart. Envy happens when someone has something we do not. Right, recognition, achievement, whatever. And envy is corrosive to joy because envy puts the focus on what we lack compared to others, right? They got the promotion, I did not. They got the new car, I did not. They got the partner they wanted or the position they wanted, I did not. Envy will eat us up on the inside, perhaps the only vice that's no fun at all. And it can ruin relationships and negatively impact our relationship with God. See what you think about this. Follow the thread. Underneath envy, usually lies an accusation against God, conscious or not. That underneath envy, giving fuel to envy, there's this deep questioning of God's sovereign goodness. Envy always accuses God of an unjust distribution of skills, gifts, and opportunities. God, I should have got what they have. Like, I deserve it more. Things that you have given to others, you know, they should be mine. If you don't give me what they got, you're not good. And all of it's envy. And envy, like all sin, separates us from God and one another. As one commentator writes, quote, Love for God and envy of others cannot coexist in the same heart at the same time. When envy moves in, love moves out. So how do we feel when other people win? Do I experience joy or jealousy? Because if we rejoice when other people win, we will always have reason to rejoice, whatever is going on with us. But Paul goes here, hey, some are preaching, some serve, some live out of envy. And let's look at another part of Paul's perspective here that's deeply helpful. So Paul, he knows their motives for preaching are bad. And not only that, Paul does know motives matter. Throughout his writing, Paul cares about right motives in ministry. He talks about it in his letters. And so Paul here, he could have focused on their wrong motives. He could have been angry and frustrated about their wrong motives. He could have obsessed about it late into the night. Instead, he made a decision. Look at what he writes. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Again, Paul elsewhere, he goes, motives matter, but big picture, ultimately, on a scale, on a hierarchy, kind of creates one here, big picture, regardless of their motives, which I can't control, I will rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. And if I could just speak to our hearts directly this morning, we've probably noticed that whatever we look for, we will find, meaning If we look for reasons to be discouraged, we will find them. This is a broken world. But if we're looking for reasons to be encouraged, if we're looking for reasons to rejoice, we will find those also. This is our Father's world, and He's actively working to bless what is beautiful and redeem what is broken. 
And in this passage, Paul has a real decision here about where he will look and what he will focus on. And we see him make it in real time as he pens these words. Like, Paul will address the motives of the preachers, but he will not obsess about the motives of the preachers. Instead, he rejoices in the message being proclaimed. He disciplines his focus. It's like, oh, but their motives were so bad. Like, why are they trying to cause me trouble? What did I ever do to them? It's so, like, so wrong, right? And yes, do all of the above. Feel all the feelings, but in the end, Paul disciplines his focus. And in our lives... Don't let joy be an accident. Let joy be a discipline. Joy is not the result of right circumstances. It's the result of right focus. To choose to focus on the goodness of God and the sufficiency of Christ and the advance of the gospel. That's what Paul does. He goes, for this reason I rejoice. Envy puts the focus on what we lack. Envy comes from a Latin word that means literally no sight. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the envious labor under cloaks of lead and have their eyes sewn shut. They don't see. They miss the goodness of God. They miss joy. Joy puts the focus on all we have in Christ. And then Paul's going to tell us why he's going to go on rejoicing. And he's going to give us what I think is the key. And then we're going to be done. He says this back in the text. He goes, yes. And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or death. This is hardcore. This is a verse that you could, uh, with parental permission, or if you're old enough, get tattooed on your body. This is a great (laughs) verse to get. Taya, who's singing up here, does tattoos, so this, you could talk to her afterwards. Um, Also, I'm drinking water from a Wagner Hills bottle, so shout out to Wagner Hills. Anyone else I could give a shout out to right now? Sarah King, Ariel. Ariel helped design the Philippians. Okay, sorry. Oh. <laughs> All right, sorry. Um, verse 21, favorite verse in the Bible, maybe. Paul writes this. It's so hardcore. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. It's a crazy line. I would, I'd rather die, is what he said there, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress in joy in the faith, so that through me being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So he says a lot of things there. He says, through the prayers of the church, God will provide his spirit, the comforter, the counselor, the one who comes alongside and gives strength. He believes that the prayers of the Philippians are helping him in prison. He also expects deliverance, salvation. And he has this great prayer. He says, whether by my life or death, I pray that Christ would be exalted in my body. That my body, my words, my actions, my attitudes would be a theater displaying God's glory and goodness. 
I pray I would have courage that that would be the case. But I want to zero in on verse 21 because it's the key, I think, to Paul's whole perspective on life and ministry. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Greek is more emphatic. It literally reads, to live Christ, to die gain. And as a follower of Jesus uh, or not, we're we're all living for, for someone or something, right? It's like, for me to live is what? There's options, right? For me to live is to make money. Poverty becomes death. For me to live is to travel and have experiences. COVID is death. For me to live is to work. Unemployment is death, right? For me to live is to raise thriving children. For me to live is to create beautiful art. I mean, these are worthy things, like valuable pursuits. But even if the ultimate purpose for living is something as valuable as family or friendship, if any of those good gifts become ultimate in our lives, taking the place of God as the reason for which we live and the thing in which we put all our hope and trust, then death is always and ultimately loss. Dan made me this diagram. I've been excited to see it on the big TV. The things on the outer circle are good things. School, career, looks, achievements, family. They may be part of our identity. Things that make our lives enjoyable. But when we make them ultimate, they become our sole reason for living. And all those things can be taken from us by life or circumstances outside of our control. And there's no guarantee they won't be, which leads to insecurity. And that insecurity gives birth to fear and anxiety in our hearts. So sometimes, God in his mercy allows us to experience trials or pain or a pinch in these areas of our lives. And the enemy wants to use the trials to tempt us and destroy us, to embitter us and break us. God wants to use the trials to remind us that these things can't be ultimate in our lives and to prod us toward our ultimate identity as children of God loved by Christ, which is where all the arrows are pointing. A Romanian pastor once said to me, he'd been in prison for his faith, and he said to me, Christians are meant to be like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. We go deeper into a love that can't be taken from us. We're to live from the center, and from the center engage all the other good things in our lives. But to live is Christ. That's the center. That's the radical nature of the Christian faith, right? And to turn Jesus into a means to some other goal is not Christianity. It's idolatry. It won't work. Christianity does not work when we're trying to use Jesus to get something other than Jesus. God will not bless it. God will not bless the lie that something is more worthy of pursuit than knowing his son and becoming like his son. Jesus was the center of Paul's life. His chains revealed it. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And look at how having that attitude turned Paul into an unstoppable missionary with unquenchable joy. You can see it in the text. I mean, look at his attitude. Like, Paul, we're going to let you go. You're free. Great. 
get to tell more people about Jesus. You know, fruitful labor for me. Paul, we're going to keep you in prison. Great, I'm going to tell you about Jesus until you're sick of it. We'll see who's in prison by the end of this four-hour sermon. I'm going to recite the whole book of Romans four times. And uh, Paul, we're going to kill you. Great, get to be with Jesus. That's the thing I most want. For the apostle Paul, even death is gain. It's like, why? Because death would bring him into the presence of the one he'd been living for, Christ Jesus. Living for Christ is the only thing that turns death into gain. If Jesus is our treasure, if to live is Christ, then each day we live brings us a step closer to fully embracing and experiencing our treasure, which allows our joy to increase with age. And there's deep comfort in taking Paul's attitude as our own. I read this passage, and I wrote the devotional in the book on this passage on the anniversary of my father's death. Just worked out that way. And I was reminded that he went to be with Jesus. And though his absence is great loss for me, it's great gain for him because he's in the presence of Jesus. He's where he most wanted to be, with Jesus. And I wouldn't want to pull him back. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in the language of Narnia, where Aslan the lion is like the Christ figure. And it's the last book of the series, and Lewis writes these words. He says, then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look as happy as I mean you to be. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Hey, church, you don't yet look as happy, as joyful as I mean you to be. Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look as happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, you've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream has ended, this is the morning. And then he writes at the end of the book, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's why to Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And in closing, we might wonder why, why we should say, you know, to live is Christ. Why? And the answer is love. Like, why does the gospel advance? It's the love of God. Somehow seen even through the brokenness and sin of people. The love of God seen in the person of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal God who went to the cross for you and for me. It's like the Father said, I love these people I have made, but they're lost. And the Son said, here I am, send me, Father, I will find them. 
And so Jesus humbled himself and entered history and went to death, even death on a cross, bearing our judgment, tasting our shame, enduring our suffering, also that we can be citizens of heaven, members of his family, also that we can come home. And he did it for the Father's glory, and he did it because he loves us. He said, I will give my life to make you holy and whole. Jesus said, I live and I die for you. And when the Holy Spirit makes that real in our hearts, we say along with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. And for me, for me today, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's where I'm at. But that's where I want to be. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the gospel continues to advance one surrendered heart at a time. The gospel continues to advance one healing heart at a time, encountering the love of God in Jesus. At that, Paul invites us to join with all of heaven in rejoicing and continually rejoicing.